Mark chapter 11, we're going to be looking at something today, historically referred to as the triumphal entry. That is Jesus now, having arrived in the region of Jerusalem, knowing that the cross lay before him. Today in our text is the first day of the Passion Week, known as Palm Sunday. And we'll read in just a moment that he makes his triumphal entry when he comes down the Mount of Olives, seated on a donkey, across the Kidron Valley, up to the Temple Mount, through the Eastern Gate, because the Messiah was expected to go through at his first coming and at his second coming, and onto the Temple Mount. He will openly, boldly, and publicly proclaim himself to be the Messiah, the King of Israel. Let's read it. Mark 11, starting in verse 1. And as they approached Jerusalem and Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will bring it back to you. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying that colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus told them, and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it, and he sat upon it. And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. And those who went out and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Father, this morning we are asking that you speak to us through your word. We know that we have before us this unique historical event, yet we pray that you would not allow it to be mere history, that you would cause it to be a present reality in our lives. The Lord, through your holy word, you would cause your Holy Spirit to minister to the ears of our hearts. Enlighten our spirituality, our relationship with you. We ask Jesus that you would make a fresh, new, triumphal entry into each of our individual hearts. You know how to speak to us. You know what we need to hear. You know what you want to communicate. The God of the universe, you speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The triumphal entry, as it is called, is an extremely important event prophetically. That is, with regards to Bible prophecy. Daniel was a prophet, you know that, and Daniel was in exile in Babylon. It had been prophesied by uh, Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah that the nation of Israel would come to a period where they didn't repent, having gone away from the Lord, they would be judged by God, and God would send the Babylonians to come and to conquer them and take many of them captive back to Babylon. The first episode of that was 586 years before Christ. The next one was 605 years, or vice versa, you know, 600, 586, whatever. And so it happened, the Babylonians came, dragged away many Jews captive to Babylon. Now Daniel had a copy of the scroll of Jeremiah. And while he is in Babylon, he's reading the scroll of Jeremiah around about chapter 29, where Jeremiah prophesied by the Spirit of the Lord that Israel would be taken captive for 70 years. And then the Lord would bring them back into the land. 
And so Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 is reading that, and he discerns, wow, we've been here in Babylon now for about 70 years or so. And so having a, a, a renewed sense of national zeal, and of course God's zeal, wanting to know God's plan for his nation, he begins to pray and fast and intercede for the Jews. And God sends Gabriel, the messenger, the angel, to communicate to him what the future of the nation of Israel would be and what the nations, plural, would be. And he told them, concerning your people, Daniel chapter 9, around about verse 27, concerning your people, there will be 77s decreed for them. That is, the history of the nation of Israel will consist of 77-year periods, 490 years. The last seven-year period is known as the tribulation period. We read about that frequently in the Old Testament. We read about it in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Thessalonians, 2 Peter, and the book of Revelation. The tribulation period, the end of the 490 years. But prior to the 490 years, if you can subtract 7 from 490, you have 483 years. The angel told Daniel that it would be 483 years until the coming of the Messiah. And then the Messiah would be cut off. And then there is this gap of time in which we live before the final seven years. And then the Antichrist would come, and hence the tribulation period. But all that to say that the first coming of Jesus Christ was prophesied to the day by the Lord and communicated via Daniel to God's people. 483 years until Messiah comes. From, we are told in Daniel chapter 9, from the day that the decree goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem. Now Ezra was given a decree to rebuild the temple, but it is Nehemiah who was given the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, its walls and its moat, so on and so forth. In 445 B.C., the first of Nisan, the first day of the Hebrew calendar, Nehemiah was given permission by King Artaxerxes to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls. We read that in Nehemiah chapter 2. From that day, the first of Nisan, 445 B.C., it would be 483 years until the coming of the Messiah, the King. That's 173,880 days. That day, if you work it all out, accounting for leap years and so on and so forth, if you work out the days, it ends up to be April 6, 32 A.D., which is the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. It is this event that we just read about, prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, 483 years prior. All that to say, had the Jews been biblically aware, had they concerned themselves with Bible prophecy, they could have known when their king would arrive. And yet, as we'll see in a moment when we go to Luke, many of them miss the coming of the Messiah. Many of them miss the coming of the king because they were not aware. I want us to be aware as a church. I want us to be aware as a congregation. I want us to be aware as a community and as families of the soon coming of the Lord. The first coming of the Lord was prophesied to the day. Concerning the rapture of the church, the Bible says, no man knows the day nor the hour. 
It is imminent. That means it can happen without any warning. The rapture of the church could take place at any moment. We don't know what that is. That is the event described throughout the New Testament where the Lord comes in the sky and he redeems for himself or he takes up to himself his bride, the church. We are removed from the earth while it goes through the tribulation period, a time of refining for Israel, a time where God pours out his wrath upon an unrepentant world. If you're a Christian, you will not endure that. Jesus took the wrath for you upon the cross. And so you don't need to take what is called the wrath of the, the, wrath of the Lamb through the tribulation period. Jesus already took your wrath. You've received forgiveness. But for those who refuse him, there will come the tribulation period. We don't know the hour of the rapture of this, but we know it is near. We see Israel regathered back into the land. Having ceased to be a nation for some 2,000 years, midnight, May 14, 1948, they became a nation again. It's unheard of. It's unfathomable. It has never taken place in the history of the world that a nation ceases to be for a couple thousand years and then comes into existence again. The Lord prophesied it all the way from Deuteronomy chapter 28 forward in the Bible that he would one day scatter Israel and then regather them back into the land. We see that taking place. We see prophetic scenarios in the book of Revelation that a hundred years ago would have been impossible. For example, when the two witnesses, who many presume to be Moses and Elijah, though we don't know that, the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 13, when they are killed in, Jer in Jerusalem, it says that all the world views that. Now, we couldn't do that before CNN. But now that we have it, there are certain things in the book of Revelation that could take place. We are told that someone will have to have an identifying mark without which they cannot buy and they cannot sell. That is possible now. We recently read an article where in Mexico, um, they're implanting government employees with chips in their right hand to identify them. In Japan, they're doing it for school children to identify them. Our military has been doing it for quite a time. We are getting near to a time where you could go into the market, have your little hand scanned, and there is a debit transaction that happens with your bank account. We have the technology for the Antichrist one world system to be put in place. There are prophetic scenarios that couldn't have taken place until recent history, and from these we know that because the world stage is set for Antichrist, that it is even more prepared for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see with the rapture. The Jews in this day were prophetically unaware. Prophesied to the day, the coming of their king, and they missed it. Saints, you've got to be aware. How are you living today? Are you living in light of the soon coming rapture? I want to live every day for the Lord. I fail in it every day, but every day I'm mindful. This might be the day that he comes for me. And so he was setting the stage for the first coming, uh, prophetic coming here in Mark 11. I say prophetic coming because the prophetic first coming of the Lord was not when he was born. This is the fulfillment of of the prophecies of the coming of the king, this event. So this is the technical, prophetic first coming, the triumphal entry. It is not the um, coronation of the king. It is merely the proclamation. He is proclaimed to be the king of Israel here in the triumphant entry, but he has crowned the king at the cross when the thorns were put upon his head, and he won the victory over sin and death. 
So we have here the proclamation of the king and the clear setting of the stage. Go now, disciples, into this town, and there you'll find the colt upon which no one has ever sat. Untie the colt and bring it here. If anybody says to you, what are you doing with my donkey? You tell them the Lord has need of it, and they'll send it. The Lord had prearranged, he had set the stage with the Old Testament prophecies and the current things happening for him to be presented to the nation. Did he go to some guy in that village and say, all right, listen, in a little while I'm going to send two of my disciples here. They're going to ask for your donkey. You're going to be like, what are you doing with my donkey? When they, when, and then they're going to say, the Lord has need of it, and then you let him have it, okay? All right, we'll see you later. Did he arrange it like that, or was it just a supernatural God thing? Who cares? The point is, he set the stage. It doesn't matter. The stage was set. Jesus is being very deliberate here in what he does. There is a prophecy in the second to last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Behold, Israel, your king is coming to you, and he is lowly seated upon a donkey. Jesus was coming to Israel, not as a conquering king, but as a meek Messiah. Now, at the second coming, at the end of the tribulation period, he will come as the conquering king. We read in Revelation chapter 19 that he comes that time on the white horse with all the armies of heaven behind him, that his tongue is a two-edged sword, that his robe is dipped in blood, and he is called the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Then he will be the conquering king. He came the first time as the meek Messiah. Fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel 9 and Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming. I want you to consider this. As we see the Lord setting the stage here for this event, has he been setting the stage for anything in your life? Why are you here today? If you're not a Christian, if you're just visiting today, what are you doing? You're probably thinking the same thing right now. What is he talking about? Why am I here? And how do I get out? And that's fine. But before you leave, think for a minute. Why did you come here? What is going on in your heart that made you come to some place called reality? What made you come to this kind of place? God is setting the stage in your life. You see, for all your things, you still have some indescribable, insatiable, unmanageable at times, hunger, desire. You're not physically hungry. You ate breakfast before you came. You're already thinking about lunch pretty soon. You won't be hungry today. But there is a spiritual hunger inside you. There is something missing. There is some sort of emptiness. And you've come here looking for it, haven't you? I know, I've been in your very position before. What you're looking for is Jesus, your King, the Savior of the world. And He's been setting the stage in your life, setting up little donkeys, as you will, to present Himself to you. This guy is your Savior. Let me talk to the Christians for a minute. Is God setting the stage in your life for anything? You're a Christian. Jesus is your Savior. But is He your King? He's your Savior. But is He your King? You see, there's a, there's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference. He's your Savior. 
but is he your king? What does it mean that he is your king? It means he is in control. It means that everything is surrendered unto him. It means that it's all about his agenda. Aren't you glad that we have presidents in America, not kings? But the reality is, the Bible calls Jesus the king. Is he your king? Has it gone beyond just your savior? Have you surrendered your agenda to him? I know that you've surrendered bad things to him. That's no big deal. We all do that. We can all agree that that's easy. Not easy uh, uh, physically, but, but easy morally. Man, I've got bad stuff in my life, things I do wrong. I need to surrender that to Jesus. Good. We understand that. That's right. But have you surrendered even the good things to him? The things that are right for what might be best. The things that you really want and have an agenda for, asking for his agenda. I mean, have we really made him our king? I don't preach to you, I preach with you. I'm preaching this Have we made him our king? I want you to look at verse 8. Very interesting. Verse 8, here's the picture. Jesus is now seated on this donkey. He's coming down the Mount of Olives, and there's a crowd there. It says that they did something very interesting in verse 8. And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had picked out from the fields. These leafy branches, we're told by Matthew and Luke, are palm fronds. What are these people doing? Here's this guy on a dirty old donkey, and people are taking off their coats and throwing them on the ground so the donkey could walk on top of them. What are they doing? Well, we know that people often did that for kings or dignitaries in this culture. Way back in 2 Kings, we see that uh, King Jehu, people took off their clothes and he would walk across them. It was a way to honor the king. It was normal at that time. So there is in this a clear declaration that there were some people recognizing Jesus to be the king of Israel. But I want to make it personal now. What does it mean for us to uh, take off our clothes? Not literally our clothes. Not our physical clothes. But that thing which we all have on the outside. You know what I mean? That persona that we've created. That front. That attitude. That reputation. That desire. That identity apart from the Lord. What would it mean today to take off those things and lay them before the king and just just let the king have sovereignty over you. I know he's your savior, but is he your king? Is there something today that needs to come off and go down at the feet of the king? Be surrendered to him? It's interesting. It says that they also had the leafy branches, the palm fronds. The palm fronds in that day had significant political meaning. About 200 years earlier, there was led against the Romans the revolt of the Maccabeans. And about that time, the palm frond became to be known as a symbol of national freedom, of national pride and national zeal for Israel and for the Jews. And so when they would raise and uh, wave a palm frond, it was like waving the flag maybe on the 4th of July for us. It was a symbol of national freedom and zeal. But you take note what they did there. They took this picture of freedom and they laid it before the king. There's a political statement for them. But what might it be for us? 
interesting concept. As Christians, we are called to give up every right. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. As Americans, we have every right. Come on, dude. This is a free country. Don't get trippy on me in church. I'm an American. I've got every right in the world. I've got rights to this, that, and the other. You do as an American, but as a Christian, none. As a Christian, we are called to give up our rights to our family. Very difficult concept to get. To give up our freedom. Wait a minute. The book of Romans teaches us that we are saved for freedom's sake. That we are free in Christ. What does that mean? It doesn't mean free to do anything. It means free from sin. It means free to walk according to the precepts of our king. Free to follow the king. Free to commune with the king. Free to love the king. Free to hear from the king. But not freedom apart from the king. And so our earthly rights, sometimes our king says to us, surrender your rights unto me for my agenda and for my purpose. That's what Jesus was doing for the purpose of the Father. When he, the third, per second person of the Trinity, draped himself in humanity and humbled himself to the point of death upon a cross, he gave up his rights as the God of the universe. He gave up his rights as the second member of the Trinity. He gave up his rights to the point of bleeding on the cross for you and I. And then he says, if anyone wants to follow me, let him pick up his cross and deny himself. What does it mean that we have rights? This wild up about you and I don't have rights. That's my right. It's normal. But here's what's supernatural. Surrendering our rights unto the Lord, what you want to do in my life is what you want to do. So easy to say it. I say it all the time. All the time. Just the other day I went surfing. And I was with a couple guys from the church. And surfing for me is a, it's an interesting exercise in self-control. And uh, we were on the beach and we just prayed. Oh, Lord, whatever you want, you know, for this little time of surfing. I mean, Lord, we just want to go out and love people in Jesus' name. And just let us represent you and talk to some people and encourage them. And Lord, if you want to give us a couple ways, that's cool. We surrendered our rights with our lips. And then I got in the water out of Rincon with 150 other people. I said, wait a minute. I got rights to at least 10 waves out here. Everybody pay attention. I got some rights out here. I've been surfing here since before you ever were born. My rights. It's easy to say we have rights, but we don't, but we surrender them. It's much harder to do in daily life. You understand what I'm trying to illustrate? Hard to do in the daily life to lay those things down and to say, Lord, truly, your agenda. Now, we spoke about it a few weeks ago, and I don't want you to forget this, that the Lord is not a taker. The Lord is a giver. What do you have that the Lord can't make? <laughs> made one of you. You will never make me. You are absolutely You are absolutely precious to me. You are the only person you have the world You're the one. And I believe it. Romans chapter 12 is the author of your faith. Making us Give yourself to me. What does it profit a man? gain the whole world and to lose his soul. So I hope you would see in Mark 11, 8 there, 
a picture of laying down our persona, our reputation, our stuff, and a picture of laying down our freedom and saying, Lord, your will be done, not mine. I want you to see something else now in verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What does Hosanna mean? It's one of those things that you say in church. You don't know what it means, huh? Hosanna. We're going to sing it later on. Hosanna. If you've grown up in church, you've always sang it. You were a little kid in, in an old Sunday school. Hosanna. Thought it was the Sunday school teacher's name. You had no idea what it meant. Hosanna. Hosanna. It's like hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. People say, oh, you know, this, oh, there's going to be waves tomorrow. Hallelujah. What does that mean? You come in here, you say, hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Just throwing a couple Hebrew words together and making them a little English. Hallelujah. Praise, hallelujah. Hallelujah. What if Hosanna? Something to do with grace. A little bit. It means save now, David Granada, Carpinteria local. Save now. The cart boy made good. Hosanna means save now. So here are these people on the side of the Mount of Olives with this guy coming down the hill on a donkey, throwing their clothes and branches in front of him, singing, save now. Well, it had political ramifications and it had spiritual ramifications. Politically, Israel was a people oppressed and occupied by the Romans. And so literally they were saying, save us from the Romans. You are the king. But I believe there are also those there who were saying, save us spiritually. For us now, when we say, Hosanna, we just mean save now. Shed your grace upon us. But here's what I want you to These people were shouting Hosanna at this moment. And four days later, they'd be saying, crucify him. On Palm Sunday, it's Hosanna. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And four days later, it would be, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. We will not have this man to rule over us. Now I will preach to myself find that too often the truth in my life. That on Sunday or certain days of the week I can be singing Hosanna, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And then during the week I won't have you as king. I've got my own agenda. I've got my own pride. I've got my own plan. I've got my own will. I can surrender that right. That person owes me that. I was wronged, Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. No, but I have rights. I will not have you to rule over me. I have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. That's what happens so often, unfortunately, practically in our lives. That's what happened historically right here. Hosanna one day and crucify him the next. Saints, I just want you to think about the kingship of Jesus Christ. I want to think with you about it. You don't want to have a Sunday experience, do you? You want to have a week-long relationship with our King. I want us to begin to use corporately the word King more often as we speak of the Lord. I think it just has the right connotations with it. 
the king. Oh, there's all sorts of other ways you can describe the Lord. He's our savior. He's our brother. He's our best friend. We are his bride. There's all sorts of ways we can describe him. But I want us to think about him as the king. And I want us to think about 24-7, Hosanna, hallelujah, not denying him throughout the week as these people did. It's too easy to do in a hot political situation. Let me talk to you. This was the hottest political situation that happened in Israel in 200 years. It is the season of Passover. And during Passover, Israel was celebrating and commemorating what? The Passover. Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> yes, they were remembering the Passover, which was what? Yes, when they were liberated, when they were emancipated, when they were delivered from Egypt. Remember, they had become slaves to Egypt, and for some 400 years, they were enslaved to Pharaoh. And there came a time where God delivered them. And God said, here's what I'm going to do. Tonight, I'm going to strike down all of Pharaoh's firstborn and every firstborn in Egypt. But you, Israel, if you take a lamb and you kill a lamb at your door and you put its sacrificial blood on the top of the door and on the sides of the door, then when the angel of death comes, he will pass you by. He will pass over you, you will be spared, delivered into freedom by the blood of the Lamb. Beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ has done for you and I. And so at this moment here on Palm Sunday, they are celebrating, they are remembering the Passover. It is the equivalent of 4th of July, but extremely more dramatic. And they're occupied by the Romans at the so when the Roman guard that was always increased during the three high holidays, the most important which being their Passover, the Roman guard was tripled at the time. And everybody's gathered on the Temple Mount, maybe three million Jews in Jerusalem at that time. And there comes from the mountain the shouts of Hosanna, save us now, blessed is the King. See what happens next in Luke chapter 19. Go to Luke 19. Luke 19. Luke 19, verse 37. And as Jesus was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, when they said, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, they are quoting Psalm 118, verse 26. Cross-reference in your Bible. Psalm 118, verse 26. It has always historically been noted by the rabbis to be a messianic psalm. That is a psalm that would be sang to the Messiah at his coming. So when the religious leaders, under the pressure of the Roman occupiers, begin to hear the scream coming from the Mount of Olives toward the center of worship, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us now. Two things go through their mind. Number one, we are in trouble now with the Romans because they're declaring this guy to be the king, but we're supposed to say there is no king but Caesar. 
Number two, they are declaring this guy to be the Messiah because all us Jews know that when Messiah comes, that we would sing Psalm 118, verse 26 to him. They are claiming him to be the Messiah King. That presented for them a political difficulty. Because if the people begin to follow after Jesus, there might be an uprising. And then the puppet religious leader system of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin would be squelched and squashed and removed from Israel as the uprising under this possible Messiah was put down by the Romans. And so we're told in John chapter 11 that Caiaphas, the high priest that year, came up with a plan to have Jesus murdered in order that the people might not follow him and create a political mess. And it is political pressure that caused the disciples to go from saying, Hosanna, to crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. It was a politically hot moment. It was a politically hot week. We're living in a politically hot time right now. We're living in a time where more than ever in this century, the line has been drawn in the sand. More than ever. I don't have uh, channels in my house, my TV channels. I stopped by my dad's house last night, my mom and dad, they were babysitting my son and Zach, and he had Fox News on. In Fox News, there was a huge debate going on about the passion of the Christ. The debate was, would it win an um, Academy Award? What was this called? Oscar? Would the passion of the Christ win an Oscar or not? And they had uh, Kirk Cameron, who happens to be a Christian, and some other guy there debating. And the one guy saying, never. This is a religious movie. It says horrible things. It's anti-Semitic. It's wrong. Hollywood hates it. Hollywood is liberal. We hate this stuff. We will never give this thing an Academy Award. Kirk Cameron is sitting there saying, hey, man, it's the seventh or ninth highest grossing film in the history of the world. It won't be overlooked. The line is drawn in the sand. You turn off Fox News. They're talking about the Lord. They're talking about the passion of the Christ. The line has been drawn in the sand politically in our nation like it never has before. A friend of mine just returned from a mission trip to Ireland. And in Ireland, they met with a whole bunch of church leaders. And the church leader said, you know what? Europe is slipping away from God at an ever-increasing rate. Our political leaders are more and more anti-God. The culture and the climate over here is anti-Christ. And they said, we see as a church leader Europe slipping away from God. But as we look across the Atlantic, we see America returning to God at an ever faster rate. That was their perspective. I don't know what yours is. That was their perspective from across the Atlantic we see something spiritual happening in America. We see that there is a line drawn in the sand and people are beginning to choose God. At least what is moral, we saw it in the elections. It's a politically hot time. It was for political reasons that the disciples went from Hosanna to crucify. Peer pressure. It was the mob. Where are you today? You're in one of three camps. You are either in the boat of the Pharisees, the religious ones, who refused to recognize Jesus as the king because they had a lot to lose. 
Some of you here today are very religious. You're here every single Sunday. Wouldn't miss it. But when it comes to letting Jesus be the king, when it comes to letting him make his triumphal entry into your life, too much to ask. Too much to surrender. You'll keep him at religious bay. The second group of people, disciples who, in the moment of excitement, are singing, Hosanna, hallelujah, blessed is the king, and when the rubber meets the road, I will not have any of that. And there's a third group of people, and that's this. That's you. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees and the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So we're back to the difficult situation. And Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you, if these become disciples, the stones will come. Jesus didn't make that up. He said, If these don't worship me right now, these stones are going to cry out. There is no stopping the presentation of the Messiah to the nation. Prophesied in Daniel 9, Zechariah 9, Psalm 118, so on and so forth. This is going to happen, and if they don't praise me with their mouth, these stones will cry out. There is not in the Bible, and there is not in the writings of Josephus, or any other historian from the first century, an account of the stones on the Mount of Olives crying out. In other words, there were certain disciples there who praised the Lord genuinely and continually, and did not yield to the political pressure. You are in one of three camps this morning. The religious Pharisee has too much to lose to let Jesus be king. The one who says, Hosanna now, but crucify him later. Or the one who refuses to stop praising the king the glorious way, the wonderful way, even though the climate speaks out of Even though the line is too hard. Even though there is possibly more to lose now than ever before. What will you do? Last couple of verses. Verse 41. And when he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things that make for peace. Jesus Christ is God's grace and humanity. God himself stood on the Mount of Olives and wept over his people because they didn't recognize his king. They could have read the prophecies in Daniel and calculated the existence of 173rd, 880th day of things to come. They could have heard the proclamation of Psalm 118, verse 26, and nothing was inside of them. They could have seen him on the donkey and realized it was the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. They could have simply seen the king coming and responded, but in their hearts they rejected him and God wept. Ezekiel 33, the Lord says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He says again in the epistles, I desire that none would perish, but all would come to everlasting life. For God so loved the world. God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, he gave Christ Jesus to die for us. He's the true heart of God here, weeping over his people because they didn't recognize what made for peace. They thought what would make for peace, listen carefully, I know this. They thought, the majority of the Jews in Jerusalem, thought that what would make for peace was a compromise. Don't upset the Romans. 
don't upset the religious status quo. Just compromise. That will bring us peace. Jesus said, if you had recognized this day, the things would make you peace. The king entering into your life. And when they rejected him, the Lord prophesied judgment upon them. Verse 42, part B. But now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And in 70 AD, Titus Vespasian, the Roman emperor, came into Jerusalem and he leveled the city and he leveled the temple, which has never been rebuilt since that day. And he slaughtered thousands of Jews and their children in that city. Because they compromised. Only you had known the things that make for peace, allowing Jesus Christ to be king, to truly reign. Compromise will never bring peace. Jesus Christ upon the throne is what makes for peace. You know that in this town of Carpinteria this week, three individuals took their lives. If only you had known this day the things that make for peace. And Christian brothers and sisters, we hold within us the answer to every longing of every man and woman on this coastline. It is the gospel of Jesus. That he is the Savior, the King, the Redeemer. Let the stones cry out. Let's proclaim him. Amen. Lord, make a triumphal entry into our congregation, into our coastline, into our lives. Lord, I pray for those who are without forgiveness today. They haven't recognized you as their Savior. They haven't come to you and said, God, I've been wrong, I've sinned, I repent, you are right. Jesus, you died on the cross for my sins, you paid my price, save me. Pray right now, God, if anyone in this place has never prayed that prayer, they would pray it. The quietness of their hearts and faith, and God, firm in their hearts now that you hear them, that you forgive them, that you are making them your child and your own. Flood them with a sense of your forgiveness your grace, your love, and your mercy. Excite their hearts with the promise of eternity and with the realization that they are made brand new, washed white as snow. Those of us who have been your children for some time, we just want to take stock and make sure that you're the king. Jesus, you are our king. Let it go from our lips to our hearts. Jesus, you are our king. Pray that if anyone in here needs to surrender anything that would keep you from the throne, any garment that needs to be thrown down, any freedom that needs to be submitted to your lordship, you would do so now. Allow you to be enthroned upon our faces and our lives.
prayer team is going to be up on the side of the sanctuary. If you prayed that prayer to be forgiven today, come and talk to them. They're going to explain to you your next step as a Christian. If you're struggling this morning with any of these things or anything else, now's time. This is the time to do business with God. Get prayed for, ask someone on the prayer team, pray for someone around you. Turn to your friend. Care for one another, pray for one another. Or come up here by yourself on the carpet and get on your face before the Lord. Come take communion together. Let's do business with our King.